Hello, you're listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. And this episode is designed to make you an expert on the British political spectrum. Since the 1920s, the two dominant parties were the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. But as of the 2nd of August 2019, the Electoral Commission showed the number of registered political parties in Great Britain and Northern Ireland as 408, with 11 such parties represented in the House of Commons. With so many parties representing the varying opinions and values of the electorate, you could be forgiven for failing to recognise where they sit in the political spectrum. Well, here to make you an expert on the topic is Dr Laura McKenzie, who has a PhD in politics and international relations and is currently a teacher of government and politics at Oundle School. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. (laughs) Uh, So the title says it all, but could you briefly bring us up to speed on your political know-how and your background that's put you here with us today? Yeah, certainly. Um, I've become, uh, I've been a bit of a political geek for many years now, to be honest. I um, studied politics and international relations as my undergraduate degree. Then not having had enough of that, I went on to do a master's in political research. And then ever a glutton for punishment, I did a PhD in um, politics and international relations. Um, I love learning about politics and I love teaching politics and that's where I find myself today. Uh, I'm a teacher of government and politics um, of A-level students who are uniformly interested and engaged and really are um, providing a hope for us all in this time of political chaos. Do you still try to uphold the rule of no politics at the dinner table, no politics with family? Is that quite difficult when your bread and butter is politics? (laughs) It is difficult. And in reality, isn't everything politics? (laughs) So, you know, when we have a conversation about the bus running late, well, does that not spawn a conversation about how poorly local councils are funded and all of these sorts of things? So it is very difficult to avoid politics. Um, But I do try and maintain a relatively neutral position, particularly in my classes anyway. Um, We have a, a bit of a fun activity at school whereby the students can cast their votes as to how they think their teachers vote and um, I'm gratified to say that none of them have got it right so far so I must be doing something right. Do we as a country have a broad political spectrum sort of compared to the rest of the western world? The UK is quite unusual in having what we call the Westminster parliamentary model of governance. Uh, Really, the only other countries that have the same sort of model are former colonised and now Commonwealth countries uh, that share this system. We've got a a long history of parliamentarianism. Uh, We've had a parliament in some form for the past thousand years. We also have the bizarre situation of having a constitutional monarchy and a monarch as being head of state. And we also have a rather limited experience of revolution. We're also unusual in having what's called the first past the post electoral system for general elections. Most European countries have a form of proportional representation, which broadly translates as the percentage of votes casts equals the percentage of seats that a party will get in Parliament in whatever system is used. First past the post favours large parties that have a voter base that is concentrated enough so that they win enough constituencies. And what that means in practice is that in the UK, the government in the last hundred years or so has been formed by either the Conservative or Labour Party, with some rare exceptions, such as the coalition during the war period, um, such as the coalition in 2010. And so our system has produced this two-party 
dominant system whereby either the Conservatives or Labour generally win the election. But really, the UK is a, a disparate kingdom of nations with differing histories. Northern Ireland, for example, has a culture of religious division, plus a unique history that has created a Republican versus a Unionist divide. Scotland and Wales also have a, a different culture in terms of nationalist movements. So even though I've started by saying that the UK has had a relatively stable and continuous form of political system and therefore a fairly stable political spectrum, in reality, that's just on the surface of it. When you scratch away at that and you unpick the fact that the United Kingdom is a bit of a disparate collection of nations, you see that actually our political spectrum is much broader than you might originally think. And you've teed up a marvellous plug there that if you'd like to know more about the situation with Northern Ireland, uh, you can, of course, find a previous episode of The 30 Minute Expert looking at the history of uh, the politics and the troubles to affect Northern Ireland. Um, Northern Ireland won't feature too much in what we're talking about here because, as you've rightly said, their political system is linked to culture and history and religion more. We're going to picture it from left to right. So why do we refer to those ideologies as left and right? How did that sort of come about? Um, so just to begin, the, the left-right spectrum is slightly problematic because it is overly simplistic. Um, it can also be argued that the extremes of the spectrum might have more in common than previously understood. So perhaps a horseshoe is more appropriate and we'll maybe unpick that as we go along. But with the caveat that the left-right spectrum is slightly simplistic, it's nonetheless the easiest way to visualize and understand ideologies. The concepts of left and right wing have been reported to come from the French Revolution. Those who were in support of the king stood to the right of the president in the assembly, and those in support of the revolution stood to his left. And we still use these terms now, and they're used universally around the world, which suggests that we can still bring some principles out um, of those concepts. So in today's terms, we can simplify right wing to mean support for historic institutions, tradition, monarchy, centralized power. And the left can refer to those who pursue more egalitarian principles of equality, uh, the rejection of traditional institutions and hierarchy. In your head, if you're picturing it either as a straight line or as more of a horseshoe shape, um, you've got the left, which is red color, and you've got <laughs> the right, which is blue. So if we start on that very, very far left, mm -hmm. What does that mean? I think the left wing as a whole can be summed up as socialist. And we can understand the different types of left wing if we understand what we mean by socialism. Socialism is a, a really diverse ideology that's united by what we can call redistributionist policies. So Robin Hood policies, if you like, taking from the rich to give to the poor and a desire for equality. And socialism can be uh, described in three broad strands or types. First of all, the most left-wing version of socialism, the far left, if you like, is revolutionary socialism. And this is the socialism of Karl Marx. So if you want to call it something else, call it Marxism. Now, Marx believed capitalism to be inherently oppressive. He believed that capitalism created money only for a few people he called the bourgeoisie, at the expense of the many, the proletariat. So in essence, Marx was for the many, not the few. Now, where have we heard that before? 
Corbyn's slogan in 2017. Marx wanted capitalism to be destroyed and replaced with an economy based on what he called common ownership. Everyone would have a stake in society. Everyone would reap the fruits of their labor instead of the many working for the benefit of the few. And Marx's vision for society was one where everyone would be equal, there would be no class division, and he called this equal, classless society communism. Now, just a word on communism. In reality, Marx said very little about it, about what communism should look like. Marx was concerned with socialism, which was what he described as the process on the way to communism. And communism would be the ultimate end goal of socialism, whereby everyone would live in an equal, classless society. The communist regimes that we're perhaps familiar with, or those regimes that call themselves communist, um, the USSR, China, North Korea, to name but a few, they've been characterized by totalitarianism leading to oppression. And there's debate over really how much Marx would have approved of modern communism. Marx advocated for revolution. He was all about destroying the capitalist system through revolution. That would dismantle the capitalist state. And in its place, he would create what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat. And what he meant was just the workers would rise up and they would take control for a little short period. But this wasn't the end goal because Marx wanted an equal classless society. So he said that by the time we got to that equal classless society of communism, the state would simply wither away. There would be no need for it. And I think what we see with some of these regimes that have called themselves communist or Marxist-Leninist, they're stuck at the dictatorship of the proletariat stage. They haven't yet reached that point whereby the state will wither away and be needed no more. And whether Marx was simply idealistic or pragmatic remains to be seen, because in reality, I don't think we have seen a genuine Marxist realization of communism. Now, time moves on. And as time moves on and society changes, so does socialism. And this is when we're moving along the spectrum. We enter the realms now of what we can call social democracy. And this is perhaps left wing rather than far left. Social democracy sees the transition from a belief in the destruction of capitalism to a belief in reforming it through democratic means rather than revolution. Social democracy gives us trade unions, it gives us universal suffrage, it gives us workers' rights. And it's social democracy that I think has characterized the British Labour Party over decades. The Labour Party was set up to represent the specific interests of the working class. This is what we call a vanguard party, a political party that has a specific set of or a group of people that it seeks to represent. And I think that this really is how we can characterize the Labour Party over decades. The exception to the rule when I say that social democracy has characterized the Labour Party is under the time of Blair. Now, Blair came into power in 1997, and we saw a shift in the focus of the Labour Party. And again, this is where we're now perhaps moving along the spectrum towards centre-left. Blair and his Labour Party could be, could be characterised by what we call 
the third way, third way socialism. And this concept of socialism seeks to achieve traditional socialist principles of equality by enacting redistributionist policies, by harnessing the benefits of capitalism. So socialism under Blair is no longer about destroying capitalism. It's not really about reforming it. Instead, it's about using capitalism and the money it produces and the tax revenue it produces for the state to achieve basic socialist aims. And policies such as the public-private partnership um, that Blair was a fan of, uh, just as a little sidebar, it was actually originally the brainchild of John Major, the Conservative uh, Prime Minister before him. Public services are opened up to private companies for funding. And it's in those sorts of policies that we see this fusion of socialism and capitalism working quite well. But on the on the point of the left wing, it's, it's worth pointing out that we have other left wing parties in the UK, apart from Labour. Uh, the Scottish National Party is a prime example. The SNP resembles more of a European social democratic party rather than a traditional British socialist party. The SNP shares some similarities with the Greens in terms of a progressive ecological stance and to a lesser extent Plaid Cymru. The SNP uh, set itself apart in the European Parliament, for example. Um, instead of joining Labour in the Socialist and Democrats group, they joined the Greens European Free Alliance. That was a group that was formed of progressive regionalist parties concerned about self-governance and independence. And it's that element of separatism and indeed nationalism coupled with pan-Europeanism that gives the SNP a rather different flavour from the Labour Party. So that left-hand side of our scale or the horseshoe, we have the SNP, the Greens, we've got Plaid Cymru, sort of as far left really as the British political spectrum has historically been. Labour kind of taking up a little bit more room on that spectrum as mm -hmm. different leaders have kind of pushed it further left or further towards the centre again. Has there ever been examples of British parties that have really gone full left, <laughs> communist, and have they ever come close to succeeding? That's a, a great question. Um, we have had a party called the Socialist Party. We've also had the Socialist Workers Party. Um, but they have never really won any ground on the political system at all. Um, in the UK, we're actually pretty moderate. And those extremes of our ideological spectrum have never really held water in the UK. So even though, as you say quite rightly, the Labour Party has sort of flirted with a few different types of socialism in its history, in reality, it can be categorised as a pretty fairly centre-left social democratic party. So from the centre-left through social democracy and progressivism and the influences of Tony Blair, we've now almost found ourselves in the centre ground. So kind of what does that then mean? It isn't enough to define centrism as neither socialism or conservatism, or indeed as a fusion of the two. Instead, it really needs to be defined as something in its own right. I think the easiest way to think of centrism is as liberalism. Liberalism is an ideology based on freedom and individual rights, where the role of government is either to be minimal, only stepping in to protect individuals from harm, or enabling, helping individuals to achieve in a meritocratic society that rewards the effort they put in. We see liberal concepts 
appearing in the ideology of the Conservative Party and arguably in the Labour Party under Blair. But the Liberal Democrats are the party that consistently embody liberal principles. The Lib Dems, traditionally that half party in the two and a half party system, now replaced as the third party in the UK by the SNP, tend to advocate for permissive government in terms of a soft law and order focus. For example, advocating the legalisation of cannabis, along with an enabling state. So they advocate that the state should give people a helping hand in society. And that's coupled with support for a regulated free market economy. So not completely unbridled capitalism, but a fairly hands-off approach from the government when it comes to the economy. Now, liberalism, I think, highlights the problem with our left-right spectrum because it is really the opposite of both communism on our far left and fascism on our far right. Liberalism, with its emphasis on rights and freedoms, is inherently at odds with those ideologies that demonstrate themselves in authoritarian oppression. Therefore, I think it is arguably more accurate to think of our political spectrum as a horseshoe rather than a straight line from one extreme to another. But nonetheless, I think whether we view it as that linear spectrum or the horseshoe, we find liberalism at the centre. So before we hop over the style from the red left to the blue right and discuss <laughs> what it means to be right wing, just touching on the kind of the, the centrist or liberalism style of government, are there any countries where that has been historically successful or even in the present day? We had a very strong liberal party that uh, dominated British politics in the 18th, uh, early 19th centuries. Um, and as I'll touch on in a minute, I think the Conservative Party has uh, flirted with liberal notions. So I think liberalism has shown itself to be quite a pervasive ideology in UK politics and indeed across Europe. Um, you could argue possibly that France has been born out of the liberal tradition following the French Revolution. You could see in America that liberalism is at the foundation of the American Constitution. And so I think it is a really um, cohesive and pervasive ideology that has influenced political systems around the globe, but perhaps hasn't crystallized itself into a political party that has widespread electoral support. OK, let's take that step then um, over the border. What does it mean to be right wing? Let's start with the left wing of the right wing if you like, the least right-wing ideology. <laughs> this is the centre-right, is it? If you weren't confused to begin with, you will be confused <laughs> by this point. Yeah, let's call it the centre-right. Um, this, I think, is where we find the British Conservative Party. And indeed, we can think of conservatism as being the core ideology at this point on our spectrum. The British Conservative Party has long been characterised by what uh, Benjamin Disraeli, who was a British Conservative Prime Minister in the mid-19th century, what he called one-nation conservatism. One-nation conservatives have a hierarchical view of society. Some are born to rule and others to be ruled. They accept inequalities of wealth, but crucially, they say, we're all in it together. No matter what our position is in this hierarchical society, we all have a role to play and we're all bound together by a common experience. 
And this is why conservatives tend to support the monarchy and traditional institutions. It's why they talk about the nation. These are the collective experiences that bind us together into one nation. And we see these concepts in everything from David Cameron's big society to Boris Johnson's Brexit rhetoric. This focus on the things that bind us together, no matter our position in society. Where the Conservative Party has diverged from this position of one nation conservatism is really under Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher was part of what we could call the liberal new right, first in her attitude to the role of government and secondly, her advocation of society as a meritocracy. Thatcher believed that the government should be hands off when it came to the economy. She was a free market liberal. She believed in encouraging private enterprise and reducing government intervention in the economy. She talked about rolling back the frontiers of the state. But what makes her a conservative, though, and not a liberal, is her attitude to the role of the government in people's personal lives. Thatcher was apparently contradictory in rolling the frontiers of the state forwards in terms of regulating trade unions and local councils and involving the state in people's personal lives. Uh, For example, Section 28 was introduced under Thatcher's government. That prevented the promotion of homosexuality in schools. And the second area in which Thatcher flirted with liberalism was her attitude towards society as a meritocracy. Remember, the conservatives that went before believed in an almost fatalistic hierarchy of society. But Thatcher advocated social mobility. That meant that she turned the working class into the middle class. We mentioned earlier that the Labour Party was the party of the working class. And perhaps one reason it has a bit of a confused identity of late is because the working class, as we've traditionally understood it, no longer exists, thanks to Thatcher. Thatcher allowed people to purchase their own council homes, which provided aspiration and hope that people could now access the next rung in the societal ladder through home ownership. Now, the cynics amongst us might argue that the only reason for making people middle class was so they would vote conservative, because who votes conservative? The middle class. So if we can categorise the conservative party as centre-right, we begin then to step out into the realms of the far right. But first, I think a word on UKIP. Where do they fit into all of this? Well, they can be defined as a right-wing populist party. Populism isn't an ideology in itself. It doesn't really have an easily definable set of beliefs. It's more a political rhetorical style that's been used by parties of the left and right wings and everything in between. Put simply, populism boils down to two concepts. Firstly, the people that are the underrepresented underdog in society. And secondly, the elite, those individuals who hold the balance of power in society, creating a lack of representation for the underdog, the people. Left-wing populist parties like the Scottish National Party essentially define the people as the Scottish people and the elite as Westminster, unrepresentative of the people who are denied self-determination and are in reality oppressed. Right-wing populists like UKIP in essence define the people 
as the British people, arguably a traditionally English form of Britishness, who are oppressed and denied representation by the elite, defined as none other than the EU. For UKIP, too, this us and them attitude is exaggerated by them defining the people as insiders and those who are non-British, largely EU immigrants, as outsiders. Now, nationalism or xenophobia are not at all the preserve of the right. In fact, the SNP is a prime example of a nationalist left-wing party. But for right-wing populists, immigrants often come under attack because they do not fit the definition of the people. So then we get to the far right and our second extreme ideology, fascism. Fascism is an ideology that doesn't hold much water these days in the West, despite the continued use of the word in tabloid media. Fascism combines concepts of ultra-nationalism with undemocratic, often elitist governance and a belief called, and we're going to get technical for a minute, called palingenesis. Now, this is the idea that the nation, which is the ultimate source of good, is in dire state of moral decay and needs to be reborn as a phoenix from the ashes, as it were. Now, without putting too fine a point on it, one could argue that make America great again is a statement of palingenesis. In the UK, we've had the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s, the National Front in the 1970s, and the BNP, the British National Party, in the 1990s. The BNP, despite its protestations, was undoubtedly a fascist party before reinventing itself under Nick Griffin. But we've never really seen fascism take root in the UK political system. Communism and fascism couldn't be further removed from one another. In reality, their practice is quite similar. They're both authoritarian beliefs. They both have a sort of um, strong state mentality. And really, if you want a polar opposite, it has to be liberalism, because liberalism advocates the small state, it advocates for rights and freedoms, and it is those concepts that are completely at odds with communism and fascism. Communism and fascism are not really polar opposites of each other. I'm going to argue that the horseshoe could be a triangle then, but that's probably one for another day. <laughs> is modern politics too complex now with a number of issues affecting people's lives for everyone's views to fall into these traditional left and right wing views? I think despite the UK having um, touched on the extremes of our political spectrum, in reality, politics is relatively moderate. I think it's in the devolved wings of UK politics that we see the really interesting stuff happening. Will we see a resurgence in the Scottish independence movement? Will Wales demonstrate that it has separatist tendencies after tasting more devolved power? Will Northern Ireland's bespoke agreement with the EU show it to be more European than British? And what impact will all of this have on our political system and ideological spectrum? I'd say, you know, watch this space. But in answer to your question, is it too complex nowadays for everyone's views to fall into these categories? I don't think so. I think, as we said at the beginning, we have had a relatively stable history. 
We now have a system of devolution, which has only served to increase participation and representation and accountability and everything that makes us a democracy. I think that we have the opportunity to vote for a plethora of political parties. Perhaps what prevents those views from having full representation in Parliament is not the ideological spectrum we have in the UK, but our voting system, first past the post, which invariably produces that two-party dominant system. What we are seeing now is greater engagement with politics across the board and greater understanding of what people are voting for and what their vote can achieve. Just to add some context to any of the rhetorical questions you asked there about Scottish independence or Northern (laughs) Ireland, it's just worth stressing, uh, we're recording this in July 2020, so if uh, this has been a Nostradamus moment or one of willful ignorance, (laughs) it's July 2020, so if you're listening to this at another time, uh, that would explain it. Uh, Laura, before you go, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you uh, that an expert uh, should really know? I don't think so. I think you have enough there to happily chatter away at cocktail parties about political ideologies. And everyone can now also play the game of guessing uh, which way you vote. I know I will be after we've hit the stop button on this. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Laura McKenzie, uh, who has a PhD in politics and international relations and is currently a teacher of government and politics at Elmdall School. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciated it and really enjoyed it. Laura is on Twitter. She's at LCO McKenzie. That's McKenzie with an M-A-C. And the Eundle Politics Department can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Eundle Politics. Thank you so much for listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. As always, information on new episodes can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search at 30 Minute Expert. That's 30 Minute Expert. You can also suggest topics for future podcasts. Just let me know what you'd like to become an expert at in half an hour or less.